Welcome to Theology on Tap. We're so glad you're here. It's been three weeks almost since yes. we've yeah too it's long. Been a long time. Uh, been great though. We're glad that you are here. My name is Justin. It's my good friend Brian. And if this is your first time, welcome. You'll see these little sheets of paper. Uh, this is important because what will happen the way this evening goes is we'll talk for a little bit. And then the last 30 minutes or so, you can text in, well, you can text in at any point, any question you would like at all, related to what we talk about or Anonymously. not. And it's anonymous. Uh, you'll need this sheet, though. You'll just scan that top QR code, and you'll see... Uh-oh, I think I pressed something. That's okay. Um, and you can see other questions that have been asked. You can like those, and the questions that have the most likes will go to the top. And who's going to be moderating that? Do we... Uh, Ian. Who is? Yes, Ian. Awesome. Give it up for Ian. Yay. Thank you. Give it up for Ian. Yeah, yeah. All right. <laughs> um, and so tonight, we're just going to dive right in. We're going to talk about guilt and shame, something nobody has any experience with, obviously. Um, no, so, Brian, let's start off with talking about like what exactly the difference is between guilt and shame. Well, I think the answer to that question depends on who you ask. Uh, there are a lot of different definitions of guilt and shame that are floating around out there. But I think one of the differences is that guilt is over uh, usually something that is a bad choice that you have made that goes against your moral code, if you want to put it that way. Shame is more in the line of something that uh, you have done that uh, is a violation in some way of social norms or something else where uh, it's not just you uh, feeling bad about it, but other people looking down on you and thinking that you are bad because you did whatever it was. Yeah. yeah that's not a very precise dictionary definition. I like it though, that's all right. <laughs> no, so there's definitely with shame, there's this public aspect to it that, um, if guilt is the, let's say, like the transgression of some, it's falling short of some standard, right? Mm -hmm. Whether that's a biblical standard or whatever standard, whoever standard, you're falling short of a standard and you are um, almost like in a courtroom. You are like yep. legally guilty, yep. right? That you're, you're falling short of it. Shame has more of like the eyes of everybody else are seeing you in your humiliation and there's like a bunch of different words I think that scripture will get into that kind of connote shame, which is like defilement or being unclean or exposed or naked. All of those have to deal with like the public aspect that shame kind of brings in, whereas guilt is more about this legal falling short right. of something, yeah. I think. Um, and we were talking this week a little bit about it. What would you say, so how does the Bible kind of approach these uh, two topics? Well, I think the Bible actually has a lot to say about these two topics. And what the Bible has to say about it, I think, is very countercultural. Um, that what the Bible has to say is that we're all guilty, um, that we are all sinful, and that we, we, even without meaning to sometimes, the way that we live is selfish. And so we go through our lives um, doing things that fall short of what God's standard for us is. But the great thing that the scripture tells us is that there is a remedy for our guilt and for our shame because of what Jesus did on the cross. 
And so in the Bible, those two things are intimately connected. The guilt and shame that we experience that's part of the human condition as we fall short of what God made us to be and also the plenteous grace and forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. And I think where we get messed up, even those of us who are Christians, where we get messed up is where we disconnect those two and we're experiencing the guilt and shame even if we're not admitting it, but we're not fully letting that flow of forgiveness and grace come into our lives. Yeah, that's good. Let me ask you a question I think that will be kind of interesting. Are guilt and shame good? Yes. Why? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) This, again, is a countercultural answer. Uh, There are a lot of people in our culture today, you can find any number of podcasts that will tell you shame is just bad, guilt is just bad, you need to self-actualize. You need to take no prisoners. It is all about you. And it is all about your truth, and you need to just live into that and damn the consequences, whatever they may be. Um, That, if you've been around people that have bought into that credo, um, those people are not particularly pleasant to be around. Uh, But I think what, what we see in Scripture is that when we follow a scriptural viewpoint of that, we are able to um, live in a way that is kind of like breathing, where we experience the guilt and shame, but then we are able to breathe in that forgiveness and get into um, a rhythm of that that is very freeing. Yeah, I think, I mean, we talked, there are a bunch of different ways people approach guilt and shame, and so you'll probably talk about that in a second, but I would, and I think you would agree, like, I think what's so shocking about the answer that you gave is most people would say, no, these are always only bad things, particularly in the day and age that we live. But we talked about anger last time, and just mm-hmm. like anger can be, bo- it depends on ultimately what is, the, uh, what is the message behind it that's communicating with anger. You know, we talked a little bit about what is it that you're loving that's being threatened. Sometimes we love the wrong things. Mm-hmm. Um, guilt, you can feel guilty when you shouldn't. Like if it's yep. a standard that's not a realistic or not a godly standard that you fall short of, um, then you probably shouldn't be feeling guilty, mm-hmm. and then it's a bad thing. However, and the same thing, and, and it's going to get a little more interesting with shame. Shame's a lot more complex, I think. Uh, but both of these are... Um, highly relational. They indicate something in our relationship has gone wrong. Yeah. Our relationship with God, our relationship with other people. And so guilt, first and foremost, it's, yeah, something is wrong here. I've done something, or I should ex- try to see, okay, what exactly have I fallen short of, right? And sometimes, I would say, shame can actually be a really good thing. I think there's plenty of times mm-hmm. where shame, um, we end up hiding because of shame, which is something that we shouldn't do, or we don't go to God with our shame. But shame and guilt both should motivate us to actually repent of any mm-hmm. wrongdoing that we've done. And I think that's what you would totally agree with. It's under yeah. the auspice of that. These are two emotions that are meant to drive us towards repentance and healing in our relationships. Yes. What are other ways that people would approach these things? Well, I think that our culture, you, you see kind of three ways that people deal with guilt and shame. The first is what I would call the brazen way, which I already described. That basically just says, I don't ever do anything wrong. I am perfect. I am a good person. Whatever I want is right, and you just get out of my way. And anybody that tries to put guilt and shame on me, I just reject that. I refuse to accept that. Um, You're a toxic person. I'm going to cut you out of my life. I'm going to keep going my own way. 
So that's one way. The opposite of that is the Christian way. The Christian way is that when you experience guilt, when you realize that you have fallen short, that you've fallen short of God's word, or you've hurt someone else, or you've done something um, that is shameful, that has dishonored other people, or, or God, or whatever, that you immediately go to God and repent, and you go with a, um, a, a heart that is full of sadness for the way that you've fallen short of the love that God shows to you over and over again, and you ask for God's forgiveness, and then you receive God's forgiveness, and you're restored, and that guilt and that shame are no longer uh, a factor. Or the third way, and this is unfortunately where a lot of Christians get stuck, is particularly if we're from the Bible Belt, is we're all about keeping up appearances. And like, if I'm a Christian, I don't, I don't have any problems. I don't sin. I don't struggle with temptation. And so we just bury it, and we stuff it, and we don't talk about it, and we don't admit it. And that flies in the face of Scripture. I love uh, at the end of Galatians where it talks about bearing one another's burdens and so fulfill the love of Christ. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. That's what we're supposed to do as Christians is to go to God the instant that we experience that guilt and that shame. Go to our brothers and sisters in Christ and talk with them and ask them to pray for us and help us to walk through whatever we're walking through. When we try to pretend that there's nothing wrong, that's where when guilt and shame um, can become a tool of Satan um, to really oppress us. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, Satan's name is to accuse, right? right. So this yeah. whole concept of shame is so closely tied, I think, to, that's why I would say there's a lot with shame that is deeply demonic, that accusation that isn't true. Any, if you were a Christian, you have received utter forgiveness. You are new creation. As there's so much, I've got a ton of scriptures we could talk about tonight. <laughs> but um, Yeah, one of the things you talked about is like our day today, we live in a world that there is no universal moral code, right? That's what, by and large, the only thing that the world kind of believes is like, if you're not authentic to yourself, that's the one moral absolute, right? Is to, you have to be authentic to yourself. So um, the whole concept of guilt is this fascinating thing um, that even people who subscribe to that still feel guilty. And if you've ever felt guilty before you or shamed, you know it's not enough just to tell yourself over and over and over again, don't feel this way. Right. Um, which is, yeah. it's an objective reality. No, it's an objective reality, and that is one of the reasons that I love, if you have never read anything by Fyodor Dostoevsky, please do yourself a favor and do that. Or if you haven't read it since you were made to read it in high school English and hated it, please go back, because especially crime and punishment is exactly about what we're talking about. And in that story, if you remember it, um, if you don't remember it, please go read it, uh, that the main character decides that he is beyond morality, that this whole idea of guilt and shame, right and wrong, that that's outdated, that he is the new man free from all of this, and he sees these two women that he thinks are a blight on society, and that the world would really be better if those people were not in it. So he kills them, and he thinks the world is now a better place, and I have had agency to make the world better. So he expects to be like, oh, this is great. And what happens is he is oppressed 
by guilt. I mean, it's like, why do I feel guilty? I don't believe any of this stuff. And the guilt just weighs on him. And eventually, it starts making him think that he's crazy until he eventually meets this girl, Sonia, who's a prostitute, but who understands the love and forgiveness of Jesus. And she helps lead him to understanding that um, guilt is hardwired into the human soul because it's part of the way that God has created things with a standard of what is right and what is wrong. So I think that that whole understanding that you can pretend that guilt is not a thing, um, that is just not real and human experience doesn't bear it out. Yeah, yeah there are a few places, um, well, I think it's probably good to, to go, okay, the places in scripture that come to your mind when it comes to guilt and shame uh, obviously, the first one for me in, in the very beginning in Genesis, right? You have Adam and Eve breaking the law of God, and they feel ashamed for the first time. And they, what, they, what do they do? They do the wrong thing. Instead of um, going to God with what they've done wrong, they seek to hide. They hide and, and cover up. And cover themselves. Yeah. And they cover themselves with something ludicrous that can't actually... Uh, cover themselves well. With it's like playing peekaboo with a three-year-old when they like cover their eyes and pretend they're hiding. <laughs> yeah, it right. doesn't really work. And what's interesting, so not only do they feel exposed and found out and then hide, which doesn't work, but they also go to anger and blame shifting. Mm-hmm. That happens as well. A lot of shame, it's interesting, like uh, pride, boasting, anger, um, Blame shifting, all of these can be tied to shame where you feel found out. There are yeah. different ways of going to that. What, um, and ultimately, what, what God invites us to do is to come to him when we've wronged because he's the only one who doesn't have a word of condemnation but a word of pardon because he's taken that on himself. Yeah, and I think one of the great scriptures dealing with guilt is Psalm 51, which is the, one, uh, the psalm that David wrote after he committed adultery with Bathsheba. And it is the most beautiful prayer of repentance. Um, you know, it's where we get the create in me a clean heart of God. Um, and then at the very end it says, a broken and contrite heart of God you will not despise. In the middle of it it talks about against you only have I sinned um, and done what is evil in your sight. But the other thing that it talks about is how we've been sinful um, from our mother's womb. and that sin is just part of who we are, but that God is the one who forgives. And part of what's so important about that is that we need to regularly be going to God for that forgiveness and confessing our sins, which is one of the reasons I love the Anglican liturgy, because if you're Anglican at least once a week, um, you are going to be literally confessing your sins. And if you engage in that confession prayer, um, it is a really beautiful prayer. But part of, the, part of the deal with this is that we need to learn to accept God's forgiveness. One of the things that I still remember uh, when I was very early on in my Christian faith when I was in college is that I really didn't believe that there were certain things that God could forgive me for. I thought they were too bad that I had done something that was too bad, it was beyond the pale. And then I heard some preacher, I can't remember who it was, but somebody famous, that doesn't really matter. But he was talking about the arrogance of believing that Jesus' death on the cross was not enough for whatever that sin was that you were holding on to and thinking God couldn't forgive you. And I think that is a tool that Satan loves to use to play with us and to accuse us. 
But the fact of the matter is, when we confess our sins to God, 1 John 1, 8, 9, one of the great scriptures in the Bible, if we say we have no sin, the truth is not in us, and we deceive ourselves. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we need to hold on to that and believe that when we have confessed so far as we are able and repented so far as we are able, that God forgives us, that he wipes that slate clean because of what Jesus has done. And then when those feelings of guilt come back after that, that's false guilt that is coming from the enemy, and we need to reject that. Yeah. One of the things that we haven't said so far, but bears saying is that sometimes guilt and shame can come not because of stuff we do but stuff that's been done to us mm-hmm. and that's certainly an, an important thing that you can feel guilty after abuse or shame and those are things again it's showing you that there's been a rupture there yeah um, or like a child who's been a product of divorce may feel guilty mm-hmm. again they shouldn't feel guilty for that because they actually have not that's a standard that's not an appropriate standard that they've fallen short right of, right? right and so I think that's an important thing. Um, just a couple of places in my uh, in the scriptures that stand out to me when it comes to like the actual goodness of shame, uh, because that's the hardest thing for me to wrap my mind around. I think I, it, for most of my life, I would have thought there is no such a thing as, as goodness and shame. Um, but I think both Jesus and the New Testament teaches that, that shame does have an appropriate place. And, and it's always with those who are hard-hearted and proud who refuse to see what they've done. If you think about, um, I mean, Paul talks about this, like when a brother has broken uh, in the church, a Christian has fallen short, they've, they've broken some kind of command, they've sinned, that you are to go and confess, uh, confront that person who's sinned against you. That's the first step. Then if they don't listen, uh, then you bring other people from the church in, right? And if they still don't listen, you actually exclude them from the body, the fellowship. And then most people bristle, why would you ever exclude anybody? But the point of all of this is restoration. It's yes. all about reconciliation. And shame in that instance of being excluded is always meant to bring this person to a sober mindset of just how serious what they've done is, right? Yeah. And so it's never done flippantly or reactionary. But it's this, hey, this is really important, and we're inviting you to, to see this. Mm-hmm. Jesus does the same thing, by the way. So that was in 1 Corinthians 5. Yeah, but Matthew 18 says yeah. the same thing. And it's so interesting because it goes right along with what you were saying, that the section where Jesus says, if you have something against your brother or your brother has something against you, go to him personally and show him his fault. And if he understands you have won your brother, if it doesn't work, take two or three witnesses and go. If that doesn't work, go and tell the church. But right before that is the parable of Jesus and the lost sheep mm-hmm. and Jesus going out to find the one who's away. And it's not an accident that those two are right next to each other. Yeah, that's a, Luke 15 was the other scripture that I had in mind, of course, which is the three parables of uh, three things that, that are, are lost, lost, right? Yeah. And so... Um, while there are places in Scripture that show that, that shame can be a good thing, I think the parable of the prodigal son, most often people think of the lavish love, the, the pouring out the incredible grace upon the younger brother who has squandered, made all the bad decisions, right? The punchline of the story is with the older brother, the, the pharisaical rule follower, mm-hmm. who is, again, proud and hard-hearted. He is the one who's excluded 
at the end of the story. And that's on purpose, the way Jesus tells that. But at the more, I would say by far and away, most of what Jesus talks about is how um, when we have fallen and feel shame, we shouldn't hide, but we should actually come to him because we can experience complete restoration. We're not unworthy. I mean, the way he treats the unworthy and the unlovable is just phenomenal. My favorite passage is probably Luke 7, where the the sinful woman um, is invited to this dinner party, and the Pharisees are there, all the religious people are there, and she's got the reputation in town. And the Pharisees are like, why would you be okay with this woman here? And Jesus looks at this woman who's been pouring out her tears on his feet. I mean, talk about lowliness, right? And he looks at the unlovable, and he, he gives dignity and honor to those who are shamed, um, who know they're falling short. But for those who are proud and hard-hearted, he, he gives a strong rebuke to. Yeah, yeah. And that's one of my favorite ones. Yeah, and I think that that goes to just the incredible mercy of God and that truth that we see in Scripture that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so that is so contrary to the way that we think. We, we think sort of tit for tat. We're looking for revenge a lot of times. Um, that is just not the way that God operates. And um, Screw Tape Letters is a great book to read about all of this and the way that Satan likes to play with our minds to keep us away from God. So what God wants us to do is that when we've messed up, he wants us to immediately run to him. What Satan does is to say, you are so bad. How could you have done that? You know what the word of God says. You were in church. You are such a hypocrite. How dare you think that you can go to God? And that tape plays over and over in our heads and drives us away from God, whereas in fact what God wants is for us to come to him, that he's, he's the one that's coming to us constantly, and we just need to meet him as he comes to us on the road to receive that forgiveness. Yeah, that brought to mind Micah chapter 7. This is, for me, in the times where I felt overwhelmed by guilt and shame, Micah chapter 7, verses 8 and 9, say, and Satan, is in those moments, particularly in the evenings when it's dark and you're alone and being accused, This verse has really done a whole lot for my own heart. It says, Rejoice not over me, O my enemy. When I fall, I shall rise. When I sit in darkness, the Lord will be a light to me. I will bear the indignation of the Lord because I've sinned against him until he pleads my cause and executes judgment for me. He will bring me out to the light and I shall look upon his vindication. And I think that just gives words. When the the enemy comes to accuse, it's, Okay, you think this is going to work, but I know Jesus has covered this for me. He has paid for my sin in full, and I will not believe the lies that you're coming to. Yeah, it's a yeah. good. How, what? Just in closing, how would you? Uh, what would you recommend for somebody who feels plagued by unhealthy guilt and shame? Uh, I think if you feel plagued by unhealthy guilt and shame, one of the great things to do would be to study some scripture that talks about guilt and shame and see what it actually says would also be really valuable to go talk to a priest or spiritual mentor. Um, Another thing that I think is, even if you wouldn't say you're tormented by it, but um, you feel that you have trouble dealing with it, part of the problem is we live in such an individualistic, isolated culture, even as Christians, that we think it's kind of me and Jesus against the world, and we're we're not deeply involved in each other's lives. And we are called 
to bear one another's burdens. And that means not only that you bear the burdens that others in the body of Christ share with you, but you have to be willing to be vulnerable to share your burdens. Somebody can't sh- sh- bear them for you if you're saying, I'm fine, I'm fine, there's nothing wrong with me. Uh, that corporate aspect of this is so important. Christianity is not a faith that believes that it is a privatistic kind of religion, but that we are called together with the other people that God puts in our lives who follow Jesus um, to try to follow him together, and that when we stumble, we need to help one another. Yeah, that's good. Uh, both pl- like plunging the scriptures for all of the amazing love from the beginning to the end, the way God treats those who have fallen short, who, who have broken his laws, is a relentless uh, contra-conditional kind of love. Mm-hmm. And he gives them not only forgiveness, but restoration into this relationship, an incredible dignity of being his children. Yes. Um, and as you said, the vulnerability piece, actually not going alone. This is a quote um, from Tish Harrison Warren's Prayer in the Night. And she has a great little line here about um, about vulnerability. And the, it, you know, I'll just read it here because it's... Um, It's a trend now to meticulously display imperfection online. uh, Messiness can be part of our personal brand. We don't like people who seem too put together, so many Christian leaders are sure to go out of their way to show us how messy they are. But it's also very curated. Our truest weaknesses will never be a selling point. It's those things that the people closest to us know about us that we'd rather forget or perhaps that we don't even know about ourselves. Uh, it's those things that we never share in a job interview and that people won't mention in our eulogy. True vulnerability, the word vulnerability means woundability. There, it isn't this kind of curated, I'll tell you a little bit, it's the, it's the real stuff. And that's what we're, like you said, meant to share with one another. And I think the temptation is, well, what if they respond with either further abuse or like just condemnation. not condemnation, yeah. right? Yeah. But the, even if they do, that I think there's encouragement that we're still supposed to do this because ultimately it's the Lord's voice. And that doesn't write whatever kind of response back. But hopefully the person responds with the gospel, that you yeah. are forgiven not because of how good of a person you are or even the quality of your asking for forgiveness, but just because of God's radical love and mercy. Yeah. Um, and so that's, that's probably what I would add to just in closing is the... And one more thing that I would add is there are some great old hymns of the church that are full of great theology about mercy um, when you're feeling plagued with guilt. And um, there's a great one uh, called There's a Fountain Filled with Blood um, Drawn from Emmanuel's Veins and Sinners Plunge Beneath That Flood Lose All Their Guilty Stains. Uh, It just goes on and on. It It is beautiful. And there are so many from that era that are like that. And they are deeply rooted in scriptural truth. And they can help you uh, begin to understand uh, the irrational love and forgiveness and mercy that are found in Christ alone. That's so good, too. Because in the dark hour where you're being accused, being, you know, who is it, Augustine, it said when you sing, you pray twice. Like, yeah. There yeah. Are, if there was ever a time to sing the truth, it is in those moments of guilt and shame. Yeah. That's really good.
Well, let's uh, dive into the questions, Ian. I'm sure we have one or two. Sorry, just a reminder that the polls are still open, so there's good <laughs> questions. Be sure to take a look at them, but we do have a few already. The first one, do I need to feel guilty for not speaking out against injustices that I see in the mass media? I take the approach that I'm too small to make a difference anyways. Oh, you, this is teeing it up for you, Brian. Go for it. That is a great <laughs> question. Um, I would say a couple of things about that. I think that one of the things that is really difficult about the culture that we live in right now is that there is so much stuff that I would call sort of at the macro level that is just coming to us all the time. And you can feel totally overwhelmed by it. And making statements and speaking out about things um, Maybe every occasionally there's a time when that is helpful, but I think most of the time it just ends up being virtue signaling that doesn't really make any difference about anything. I think the much better way of dealing with those kinds of things, whatever the issue is, whatever the injustice is, is to um, get involved and to reach out in the circle of people that surround you, that God puts in your path, and to proactively love them and proactively work on that issue in the small and local level. Um, there's a great Lord of the Rings quote that I just can't resist right here, so sorry, um, where Galadriel is talking to Gandalf, and Gandalf says, Saruman believes that it is only by great power and great deeds that the world can be changed. But that is not what I have found. I have found that it is the small deeds and love of ordinary folk in their day-to-day -day lives that change the world. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. Yeah. yeah, there's two aspects to this question. One is the, just the, how much, what do you do given social media and as you talked about, just the amount of content coming at us through technology. That's one issue. Another issue is the issue of how do you feel about injustice? And I think certainly we would say, we ought to be, uh, you know, just as grieved if, we ought justice. to be grieved. Yeah. You just the same way when we when we fall short, there should be an appropriate guilt immediately. It's what do you do with that then? That's the key thing. And so, as you said, right? I don't think you must go out and, uh, you know, write a public statement, <laughs> you know, out there to show your, but rather in the not in the abstract, but actually in the day to day, concrete relationships that you have to love and to foster justice. Right, where God has placed Where God's put yes. you is, is a good yes. thing to do. Good question. Great question. Why does, why does the Roman Catholic Church practice Mass on a daily basis while most other churches are limited to Sunday worship? Uh, that is another good question. I am not a Roman Catholic, so I will not presume to speak ex curia about that. Uh, but. What I would say is that the clear witness of scripture is that Christians are, be, are to be together regularly worshiping and in fellowship. And I think in, in many ways, the Catholic Church has held on to that tradition of worship and being together in a way that the Protestant Church has let go of to its detriment. Um, but I do think, like, it's interesting, for example, if you look in the Book of Common Prayer, which is our Anglican book, there is a presumption in the Book of Common Prayer that in your household, 
you're doing daily worship three times a day, morning prayer, noonday prayer, and evening prayer. And that was actually the rhythm in the Church of England for people who were serious um, through the early part of the 20th century. So um, I think there's a lot to be said for that, that dailiness of worship. That's a really good answer. I don't know if I have much more to add other than yeah, just the, the rhythms that the Catholic Church especially, and um, the Anglican tradition has tried to, to do that as well. This mixed life tradition is what it's called, where you're, you're, the monastic orders that went you know, thousands of years ago that started, where they lived their lives in community by a rhythm, right? And though the scriptures don't explicitly say how often you should gather, at least on Sunday, once a week, that's good. But um, there, there's just been a divergence there, and that's it's not necessarily a wrong thing. Um, but I think there is some wisdom today in, in trying to be together corporately and meeting together to um, to worship the Lord together. Yeah, and if you, go, if you go to England, uh, you will find in all the Anglican cathedrals, there's daily worship, daily communion. Um, and all the colleges in Oxford and Cambridge, and this is a shock to a lot of people uh, because they're Anglican for 90% of them, there is uh, daily worship multiple times a day in every college in Oxford and Cambridge as well. And that's ancient in terms of its roots. I feel bad for doing the same sins repetitively. I don't want to enable my bad behavior, but, I don't, but don't I have to forgive myself? How do I break That is a great question. So uh, I think that the, the, the clue to the answer to that question is in the I feel really bad about this. I think that when you, when you sin and you don't feel bad about it and you think this is just the way I am and it's just like, um, that is not a good place to be. The flip side of that is that you see in the scripture Paul talking about thorn in his flesh. Um, the commentators have gone wild speculating what that might have been. Uh, but the thing that oppresses him, that he continues having to deal with, even though he's been walking with Christ for a long time. And I think one of the ways to view those kinds of sins is these are things that draw you closer to the heart of God because you realize that absent Christ, that is who you are. Um, and so you, you have to continue to return to the mercy seat to beg for forgiveness. On the other hand, if you feel like you're stuck in a pattern of sin that you can't get out of, that is a great time to go and confess to an older Christian and talk and ask for some accountability. So I, I would say holding those two things sort of together. Yeah, there's so much that it, when shame is in the dark, that's where it festers and thrives. And so just bringing it out, the, the role of confession, we haven't really, but doing that with anyone, a trusted Christian who can assure you that um, of, of God's pardon, that's 90% of the battle, I think, it, because uh, scriptures say that he who confesses his sins and renounces them will find mercy. And so bringing it into the light is so much of the battle. I think shame is interesting because the way it works can be a cycle in, in my own life. The times where I've felt shame, I then try to uh, tend to feel really bad and then kind of like punish myself for a little bit that lasts for a little while. Then I essentially will either seek to numb or escape whatever thing and, and I go back to that same thing that caused the shame in the first place, place and it's a downward spiral that reinforces itself. And so. 
the way that you kind of, at least that I found that getting out of that in addition to talking to somebody about it is also really coming to believe truly how God sees me. Mm-hmm. And, and because I can know it in my head, but if I truly believe that I'm a new person, that this is this pattern, this thing in my life doesn't define me, but God's love and who he says that I am is ultimately it. If I truly believe that, and then I seek the things that are really beautiful and good <laughs> in my life, that seems to be the way out of that uh, chain or downward yeah. spiral. Yeah. That's good. Yeah. What's the best advice to give to a non-believer that is experiencing guilt and shame? I think first thing I would say is, on what basis do you feel guilty? Like, why do you feel guilty? Because that would be... Uh, if you're not a Christian, that just would be a fascinating thing. Why, on what basis do you feel guilty? And hear what their answer is. It could be a number of things. Um, and I think the irrationality for many non-Christians of their guilt is proof that there is a God and that he's made the world in a certain way. Uh, and so I would try to kind of, that it might be a way into a conversation that says, listen, I know you may not believe this, but there's a way to view the world that makes a whole lot more sense than what you're sensing right now. Yeah, I think that's really true because the the whole idea of right and wrong is deeply embedded in the Christian faith. And if you have a cultural view, um, there's really no such thing as right and wrong. It's just your personal opinion. And what's right and wrong for you might not be right and wrong for someone else. And so guilt doesn't really come into that. People that are struggling with guilt, that can be a really good doorway. Um, but I also think it's a great opportunity just love on that person um, to ask them um, say you know I'm a safe person for you to talk to and tell me more about why you're feeling this way I want to be there for you I want to see what I can do to help and I think that that can help further open that door did narcissism lead to social media or did social media lead to narcissism why do we live in the most narcissistic culture in history? Oh, I could talk so long about that. Um, yeah, so narcissism was there long before social media. Um, I don't know how many of you studied mythology and the, the uh, myth of Narcissus, which is where this idea comes from, but it's an uh, ancient Greek mythology. Narcissus was this beautiful young man, and he came upon a really still lake, and he looked into the lake and he saw his reflection and he fell in love with himself because he was so beautiful and then he ultimately was drowned because of that. And that's where narcissism comes from. Narcissism was on the rise um, in starting in the 1960s, but it like all went, the, the graph was going kind of like this. And then when you get to around mid 1990s, all of a sudden, the graph of clinically diagnosed narcissism all of a sudden went and uh, that is not coincidental with the rise of social media. So I think what social media does is it takes the things that feed narcissism and puts them on steroids. It enables you to be in control of your image, the way you present yourself to the world. It enables you to be in control of relationships. If you don't like someone or what they say, you just delete them, um, which is sort of frightening, really, in a way. Um, but it, it, yeah, social media 
feeds that narcissistic spirit, and there's a little narcissist inside each one of us. Um, that is what original sin is, that we want it our way and we want it now. Um, but I think social media has made, taken something that was already there, and it has made it exponentially worse. Again, I don't have much to add. That was such a good, I think it goes back to the very beginning. Wanting it our own way and wanting it now is the kind of like seed form of narcissism. But you can certainly see, I mean, I've mentioned The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self before, but once you start to have, that's a book by Carl Truman, by the way. And his other book is Strange New World, which is easier to read. Yeah, it's shorter. Same stuff. It's good. But the point is, is that um, particularly after the Enlightenment, when all of a sudden there is no structure to the world, it's all in your own mind, there's no purpose or meaning in life outside of what you create. When that took root, which was in the 19th century or so, and then only exacerbated today, when you get to that, all there is is just whatever is inside your own mind, yeah. and um, you can't ever contradict somebody else because there's no meaning or purpose or and there's standard, no standard outside of right. one yeah. another. Yeah. So, um, in social media, just put gasoline on that fire, yeah. pretty much. If you want to learn more about that, watch the Netflix documentary, The Social Dilemma. Um, it is it is really good on all of that. In the same vein. What do you think of Kanye West? <laughs> I think I know exactly where that question came from up here on the steps. Um, Brian, what do you think about Kanye West? <laughs> uh, I would say it is not to me to judge someone else. Um, I think we all need to pray for Kanye West. Kanye West has a huge platform. He has been around the edges and the middle and then on the edges again of what it means to be a Christian, trying to sort of live that out and figure it out. Um, I have to believe that there's a sincere quest of his heart in there somewhere. Um, He certainly doesn't get it right a lot of the time. Um, But I I would say uh, pray for him. You probably follow it with that answer. You probably know more about him than I do. So that's pretty good. That's what we got next. <laughs> I'm ashamed of a family member's very public recent crime. How do you recommend my family copes with this? That is a great question. That can be something that is really, really difficult. And I think that part of the way that you deal with it is that you don't hide. Uh, I think that in those kinds of situations where you want to hide uh, because of the shame that's associated with that, and particularly when it's clear that the person is guilty, sometimes it's not clear the person's guilty, but it really doesn't matter because the way the media is, um, it's all out there and it's all public. But I think the most important thing to do is to not hide keep going forward to live your life, to relentlessly focus on what is positive, to try to love the people in your family, and to find three or four people who are really close to you um, that you can share from your heart about how you're struggling with that and ask them to pray for you and to pray for the situation. Um, The other thing that I think can be really helpful in those situations is to get involved in service work. for those who are less fortunate to kind of get your eyes off yourself um, and off of the situation and onto something different. 
Yeah. Wow, what, what, what an honest question. I mean, that I appreciate that. And um, I think that's like the whole reason that I'm a Christian in some sense is like every other belief system has nothing to do with what do you do when you mess up. Right. And the world around you just condemns. And so the hard part with the heart that says, I'm actually truly ashamed of this, is thank you for that honesty. Um, and to remind yourself of how I, if this person has experienced true sorrow and repentance and turned from this crime, who are, who are you and who is he to or she, uh, the one to say that there's now still condemnation? I mean, the whole Romans 8, like there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. And it's part of our duty to then show exactly the way God views that person by communicating with our words and our actions that same love and that same posture towards that person. And you kind of have to do that, even though if, as fallen human beings, we probably can't do it as well. We won't be able to do it as well as God does. But we're still called to, to do that. And um, we are not the people to contradict what God has said about yeah. this person. Um, but I think the biggest temptation is to hide and to isolate. Yeah. And that is profoundly unhealthy. To that's, do. Yeah, that's right. Do we have time for one more? Yeah, we got plenty of time. Okay. Yeah, unless y'all want to leave. <laughs> Do you think it is possible someday to have a unified church, no denominations, like the early church? Do you hope for this? Yes, that will happen. Uh, but it might not happen until the new heavens and the new earth happen uh, in Revelation 21 coming true. Um, I think that we are always to hope for that. Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17, you can hear the cry of Jesus' heart, praying that those who follow him will be one, even as he and the Father are one. And so I think that is something we should always be praying for and working toward, while at the same time acknowledging that we are broken and not um, condemning people who um, are seeking to worship Jesus in a different way um, if the the essentials of the faith are still there. Man, every time it's just like crushing it out of the park with your answers. I mean, that I is not have true. much to say after that, um, other than I tend to be probably a little pessimistic in terms of in this life, uh, and yet just what you said, longing for true unity and to, and to recognize that there are, as you said, non-essentials. There are secondary matters that because we have limited and fallen knowledge right now, we're probably not going to agree. That's why I tend to, you know, uh, we may disagree should we baptize babies or not. And, like, that's okay. But the important thing is to actually be unified, I think, in this time until Jesus returns on the essentials and to speak, and to speak well and uh, to honor those who are ultimately in that one universal church. Yeah and hopefully pray for the visible unity yes. one day. What if you did something that you should feel shame over, but you confessed it to God and talked to a priest, but you still feel guilty? That is a great question. I think if you have acknowledged that what you did was wrong, you felt shame about it, you have confessed it, uh, you have laid it at the foot of the cross and uh, received Christ's forgiveness for it, um, and then you still feel shame about it, that that is a time where you need to say, get behind me, Satan. I think that is the accuser 
coming after you and trying to continue to get you to feel guilty, to keep you away from God, or to make you feel dirty or bad in some way. If it continues to be a problem, uh, I think that is a great time to go and talk with the priest or share with a mentor or a brother and sister in Christ and ask them to pray for you. Because once you have laid that at the foot of the cross, Jesus takes that and we don't need to take it back and start feeling guilty about it again. Yeah, uh, try not to be alone, I think, is the first thing. Like, uh, when you're alone, this is where, in my own life, that, that voice of the enemy tends to be the loudest and comes the most. To name the fact that it is still an ongoing issue is important, that this is, you've done this, and yet again, it's still there. Um, I just preached a sermon on Sunday, too, about, like, I think functionally for a lot of Christians, we still think that we earn God's love in some way. And so uh, there are a number of spiritual or religious things that we do that we think, I think if we're, we know in our head don't earn God's love, but in our hearts, and particularly when we feel guilty, yeah. we think that we're, there's we this contractual, yeah. yeah, that God probably doesn't love us that much. And it's just a lie. And so to remind yourself over and over, and this is the truth, to name that it's probably on the basis of some sort of contractual God says, if I do this, then he'll reward me or I'll earn his love. It's just not true, but that is such a fundamental thing in our hearts that I think, I mean, we still default to that at yeah. that time, yeah. you know, time to time, so maybe is one or two more. Yeah. Sorry? Yeah. One or two more? Yeah. Um, is it okay to live a shameless life, essentially not caring about people's attempts to shame them? Not caring about what? People's not attempts. caring about people's attempts to shame them. Um, yeah, I think it can be. I think that the sometimes the standards of the world that people want to try to put on us are not biblical standards and things that our culture thinks are shameful are not necessarily things that are shameful according to the word of God. I think it all depends on what standard um, you're trying to use. I think if you are doing things that are shameful um, by the standard of the word of God, then you should feel shame and be looking to repent but just because you're doing something the world doesn't like and people want to get on you about that um, I don't think you need to buy into that yeah I think the way I hear that question shameless tends to be a negative thing a negative connotation and so I I would say that more likely than not that's referring to somebody who's got just what you said it depends on the standard right like if you feel no shame ever uh, well, something might be wrong. Something is wrong because you aren't a perfect person, and I know that. Um, so, yeah, you should feel like guilt and shame. Like I said, when you break, uh, it, the question is then what do you do with that uh, guilt and shame? Is it an appropriate standard? Are you seeking to pay it off? Or are you receiving God's free grace for it? Um, so, yeah, I would say you should probably not be shameless in every sense of that word. Yeah, one, one more. Final question. What is memorized or wrote prayer useful for? Oh, yay. <laughs> oh, we could both go on and on about this. We, so, you thought you were done, but we were going for 15 more minutes yeah, now. So. Yeah. Um, memorized or wrote prayer is hugely useful um, because, well, let me back up a little bit. Memorized or wrote prayer that's a good prayer to start with um, is is hugely useful because when you are in times of stress 
or despondency or whatever else might be in your life, having things that are already in your heart and in your head that are theologically right, that you can live into praying out, can be unbelievably helpful in the same way that memorizing scripture can be unbelievably helpful. And so having those in your life is really important. The other thing is that when you have liturgy like we have in the Anglican Church, there is a sense of permanence and framing of life that comes from these things that have been thought out and written by people who loved God in past generations. And you enter into that stream of faithful service before God when you have these prayers that are in your heart and your mind. I could go on, but I'm going to stop and That's let you good. go on. Yeah, no, that's what much of what I'm going to say is an anecdotal uh, story that has to deal with just that. Because this is something that really has been personal in my own life, in my journey. I grew up in a tradition that it was all from the Book of Common Prayers, Anglican. And I hated it, despised it, couldn't wait to get to college to go away from that. I was a, a Christian. It became real for me. And the first thing I wanted to do was be around people that it seemed real and authentic to them. Because everything in my upbringing didn't feel that way based upon it just being wrote and memorized. Because your feelings are the most important thing. Well, they were, Brian. Thank you. Yes. Uh, no. Um, but, obviously, now I'm an Anglican priest. How did that happen? Well... Um, I ultimately realized that sometimes just because it's memorized, that doesn't hinder the devotional side of it. Like, again, it matters the quality of what's being said. And sometimes those things that have been tried and true and tested over thousands of years that are good and right and beautiful, um, even if they've been memorized, especially if they've been memorized over time and they are part of you, when you are in the dark night of the soul and when you are feeling guilt and shame, those will bubble up out of yes. you in a way that you're like, wow, it's, it's a part of you. Um, and so I realized, A, I think everybody has habits and patterns that they don't, either they know them or they're unconscious. And so let's go ahead and if we're going to be um, have these repeated things, we can go ahead and name the fact that they are repetitious and that we do these every week in, in our tradition. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we are still meant to make them genuine in our own. Just because they, we know that it's coming um, doesn't necessarily make it automatically disingenuous or yes. dis, you know, inauthentic, I yes. guess. That was my whole life in two minutes. Or okay, so. that was great. Yeah. Thank you for that. Well, y'all, thanks so much for coming. Stick around, hang out. We'll, uh, we'll be here for a while. We're so and we'll be here. right back here next, next Tuesday. Next week. Double no, header. Double header. Two weeks in a row. <laughs> Try not to make your head explode about that. Uh, but yeah. we would love to see you next week. Thank you so much for coming out tonight. And thank you, Clark and Henry's. Y'all are the best. Ooh, so. All right.